everybody's trajectory and radicalization process seems to be individualized, but the sticky glue that holds the transition from being a adherent to one who is willing to or does in fact try to kill uh, is the ideology. <laughs> That is the secret of propaganda. Those who are to be persuaded by it should be completely immersed in the ideas of a propaganda, without ever noticing that they are being immersed in it. You may have recognised this quote from Hitler's master of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels. These principles continue to guide the master propagandists of hate of our time, but they no longer serve the Third Reich, but this new totalitarian force that is violent Islamism and jihadism. At times vicious, at times more insidious, this propaganda has taken the world by storm. From the execution of American hostages in the orange suits, to the pictures of the dreamland caliphate where worthy men and women could raise a family in a true Islamic country, this messaging has driven a wedge all across European societies, leading Europeans to assassinate fellow citizens in Paris, Manchester, Brussels and Vienna. With ISIS propagandists, Paid on average seven times more than the jihadists risking their lives on the battlefront, we thought we had to take this issue seriously. So, how do jihad propagandists think? Who do they target? How do they exploit our weaknesses and get the support of useful idiots along the way? To answer the tricky questions, we have with us two fantastic guests. One has interviewed hundreds of French jihadis, while the other is a former Al-Qaeda recruiter. But before we go on, if you like the pod, don't forget you can really help it grow with little things like subscribing, rating, reviewing, or even better, sharing the pod with a friend. Now, on to the show. To tackle this question of Islamist and jihadist propaganda, we are very lucky to have with us Hugo Michon and Jesse Morton. Hugo, you're a professor at Princeton University in the Department of Near Eastern Studies, you have earned in 2018 a PhD at l'Ecole Normale Supérieure in Paris. You published in 2020 a fascinating new book entitled Le Djihadisme Français, Quartier, Syrie, Prison, which translates into French jihadism, Neighborhoods, Syria, Prisons, which includes hundreds of interviews of jihadists and provides a fantastic um, geology and map of the jihadist movement in France. It also includes a fantastic uh, preface from our friend of the show, Gilles Kepel, we came on the show for episode four called France's Islamist Poison, and I highly recommend you give it a listen. It's very, very much comp complimentary what we're doing today. And Jesse, um, uh, it's a bit of a strange introduction because you have some, some, some two lives on this issue. Uh, your first life, you were a former jihadi propagandist. You're the founder of the Inspire Propaganda magazine, which ended up uh, inspiring many other magazines of that sort, like uh, uh, the, the Beak of the Islamic State. And after being sentenced to 11 years in prison back in 2012, you became an FBI informant first in prison, and you have since devoted your life to fight against the ideology you once belonged to. And you were founder and head of Parallel Networks, an organization combating hate and extremism. And you're also one of Foreign Policy's 2017 global thinkers. Um, well, let's, let's dive right into it. Right today in France, I, I don't speculate too much. Well, we're, doing this, we're recording this episode on Friday, and on Friday, the... 23rd of April, there has been a knife attack against a French policewoman and she was killed on the spot by someone who looks to be a, uh, a, a terrorist, a jihadist terrorist. Um, Jesse, what kind of steps and processes would lead, led you and leads the people you knew to become a jihadi or a violent Islamist activist? And how does, how does propaganda fit into that process? Well, I think that it is very important important to say that what we do know, having studied radicalization now for at least 20 years in the post-war on terror era, uh, era is that uh, everybody's trajectory and radicalization process seems to be individualized, but the sticky glue that holds the transition from being a adherent to one who is willing to or does in fact try to kill uh, is the ideology. And that the real power uh, of the ideology to fuse one's needs, 
um, and, uh, and, and, and lacking sense of significance, belonging, and purpose to a group that allows the group identity to overcome individual rationality um, is in due part and largely a result of the powerful propaganda that jihadists have been able to utilize. We do see some emulation of that in the far right these days, but it is a very simple fact that jihadists have been very agile and adaptive um, in regard to conveying their message and their ideas and continuing to motivate attacks um, by justifying them through the ideology and the propaganda that they uh, they utilize. So today's example is, is particularly interesting. Again, we don't have much details, but uh, if in fact that is the case, then it is one of uh, 270 people at, at least that have been murdered in France uh, by jihadists since 2015. And that's a particularly um, flabbergasting number when you put that alongside of the fact that a thousand plus people have also been wounded in jihadist related attacks. Um, the processes that are associated with radicalization are individualized, but there are similar trajectories. Um, and what we see is, I think, and it taps into a little bit of the conversation that we'll probably hold here today, is a sentiment expressed by Olivier Roy, uh, who's a competent French uh, scholar, who said that it's not so much about the radicalization of Islam as it is the Islamization of radicalism. Meaning that Islam has be uh, the Salafi jihadist interpretation of Islam uh, has become a very uh, appealing uh, ideology for those that are frustrated, uh, but has crafted a narrative that is appealing because it taps into this predominant and ever growing sentiment of. Uh, self-hatred, I think, in the West, in some senses, uh, of uh, an, an, an inability to look at the world with nuance and to see the responsibility for all plight and all pain and all uh, of uh, injustice as a result of the history of European and Western colonialism. Um, there is a very limited ability to see any good, uh, and the propaganda, the way that the narrative is uh, formulated and the way that it taps into people that feel like their needs, their meaning, their need for significance, their need for purpose, their need for community is not being met, it is a very appealable sort of, if you can just destroy uh, what is at fault for your plight, namely Western civilization, then in fact you will be able to build up something and contribute to a cause that connects the individual actions of people that could have mental health complications, trauma in their background, and that might be for all uh, intents and purposes the reason that they were susceptible. But the meaning and the significance and the powerful narrative that can give meaning to a person in killing that gives them a justification for their very existence has become quite phenomenal. Um, and uh, that is a result of not concentrating on the objective of building a Islamic state per se, but first and foremost, cementing a vision in the mentality uh, of Muslims around the world and particularly in the West that they are under attack that they are coming for your identity, that they are actually waging a war against Islam. When we talk about the French context, uh, that is something that is um, very apparent uh, with regard to the way that jihadist propagandists target the Western uh, uh, sort of uh, identity in general. But particularly in France, there's this sentiment uh, that France is waging a war against the niqab, France is waging a war against the Islamic identity, and you are under threat. And the only way uh, to address that threat is through violence if you're the Salafi jihadist. But it's not that different than Islamists who might not necessarily advocate or justify terrorism as a tactic, but seek the same objectives and the same goals of sort of creating this sort of discomfort, this sort of lack of trust, and this sort of black and white idealistic thinking uh, that can propel a person into hating everything that is Western identity and constructing an identity that gives them meaning and significance and purpose around this whole notion that by destroying what exists now, uh, you will be building a utopic better world tomorrow. And that can be very appealing for a person who's engaged in a social movement, the likes of which Islamism in general can be considered, and then begins to see themselves as a soldier for the cause. Um, and so that's what propaganda basically does. It takes a person in a state of threat, 
feeling that they're under attack, feeling that their way of life, quote unquote, that most typically they didn't even practice up until a very near uh, point of, of, of their life before they depart and engage in an act of attempted violence. Um, it's putting people in states of uncertainty and fear that they are under threat. And we mastered it back in my day, and it has only grown more powerful uh, since then, and in fact, now uh, in 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 the near future, it will be uh, very easy for jihadists to proclaim a victory as we prepare in the United States to leave Afghanistan, Iraq, and and other ambits of conflict associated with war on terror in the very near future. Um, and so, basically, the idea is that the West is oppressing you. They are waging a war against Islam, even though they aren't outwardly uh, proclaiming it. And you can find meaning here. And the most important way and substantive way you can find meaning is to kill in the name of this ideology, if that makes sense. So, Hugo, there's a lot to unpack here. Uh, maybe um, um, before you react to everything Jesse said, one thing I, I want to talk a little bit about um, was the debate which your former professor and my former professor, actually, Gilles Kepel, had with Olivier Roy between the Islamicization of radicality and the radicalization of Islam, which was the thesis which your which Kepel defended. Um, where do you stand on this? And if you have any thoughts on what uh, uh, Jesse said after this? I think we, we need to move beyond that debate, uh, especially mm -hmm. since, um, you know, uh, actually what, what Roy says about, about jihadism can be true, but for, for a limited extent of, of the jihadist phenomenon. For instance, I mean, based on my field work, on my experience, I've noticed that people uh, were having no no link, no relation at all with Islamist movements in, like prior to their involvement in jihadist circle were very few. I mean, most of them had a sort of a, uh, a history uh, of activism within Islamist movement. And I think Jesse uh, find the right balance here because he mentioned the importance of the ideology, the importance of uh, religious endoctrinement. But in the meantime, he also uh, mentioned all the, the backgrounds that can affect and that can give force uh, um, and set in motion the, the propaganda of jihadists towards young Muslim in Europe, which is, of course, that of marginalization, be it economic or soci socially or even culturally. But if we are only looking at that, I think we're missing the point. One of the, I think one of the main factors that, that is not addressed at all between that debate is uh, in that debate is there, that there is um, uh, a geography of, of European jihadism. Uh, what I mean by that is that if you look at all the European fighters who joined ISIS between 2012, I mean, uh, the, the, jihad, the jihadists in Syria between 2012 and 2018, what you will see, what you will discover is that uh, almost 90% of them comes from only seven countries, seven European countries. If you look into these countries, you will find the same pattern. That that's it. That you have, you know, certain neighborhoods, certain uh, hubs, certain certain clusters that are more affected. That provided almost the entire uh, amount of of jihadi fighters in, in Syria from Europe. So that's very important because it means we need to dive into these territories and understand what what have what happened in these territories. What uh, you know, what what kind of transformation they, these territories uh, were, like you know uh, uh, faced in the past two decades, and and what you will discover is that these places are not um, do, do not share a same socioeconomic pattern. You've got among these towns, be it in France, in the UK, or in Germany, you've got uh, places that are super marginalized economically speaking, such as the French banlieue or the British inner cities. But you also have, in the meantime, uh, some you know working class neighborhoods where you know you don't have any any troubles there. So the common the the, the point they all share though. Uh, is that they have a common history when it comes to Islamist movement. Uh, it, you can trace back uh, to the 1990s the implementation and settlement of jihadi militant or Salafi movement that started preaching these neighborhoods and at some point, you know, built up some some hubs, some some you know some sort of preaching like machine that spread the word of Salafism of jihadism among small numbers of, of, of Islamist militants, but, but these among, you know, uh, in the past two decades have started to develop and spread their words to the extent that when ISIS, you know, uh, raised 
to the in the in the shape of a so-called caliphate, it was able to attract six thousand European. So we need to look at that geographic dimension, and I will stop on this. But you have also to bear in mind that even though there is a clear European pattern of jihadism, it also fits a more broader pattern because I mean, current work on the way in. Um, for instance, uh, at Oxford, there is a, now a researcher working on this, and he shows actually quite quite of the same that I've just described for Europe, but for the entire uh, MENA region, you know, Middle East and North Africa region. So I think that's very important to look at these territories, to look at what happened there, and to be able to retrace all these dynamics, you know, in the in the global picture and in within the frame of the European transformation uh, of the of, of the post Cold War era, basically. Jesse, I'm I'm going to ask you to tell us how, when you were in charge of doing that propaganda, how you would think. Um, you co-founded Inspire, which was one of the leading propaganda magazines. You were very much active in those networks. Uh, you met a lot of uh, very famous propagandists. Um, how how did you think? How did, how do they think nowadays? And I'm going to talk a little bit about one example, which is what happened last month at in the UK at a grammar school in Batley, where a school teacher showed in, in his class, as part of a normal class curriculum, a cartoon of Mohammed by Charlie Hebdo. He was suspended following protests by the local Muslim religious figures and activists. He's now in hiding and he's fearing he could meet the same fate as a French professor, Samuel Petit. Um, you wrote in The Spectator, playing victim and portraying ourselves as heroes was something we knew was without nuance, manipulative, and would likely have deadly consequences. Such efforts supplement the victimhood discourse that feeds radicalization and creates us versus them tropes to provoke would-be terrorists. How, so how would you think, with these kind of events, how would you think about them and how would you exploit them, Jesse? So yes, ex essentially as a propagandist, uh, and there is a very serious distinction between those that promote the ideas and those that act violently in the name of them. And there is a degree of disingenuity uh, in the way that you analyze events inside of yourself versus the way that you portray them as a propagandist in public. So inside of myself, I could see nuances with regard to an array of grievances that were promoted. Um, however, that's not the objective when you're dealing with violent extremist milieus. The objective is to put people in a very black and white world. And the way that you do that through the ideology of Islam is you talk about haq and you talk about batil. Haq, the truth, a single soul objective the truth, and batil, uh, you, uh, meaning falsehood. But then you can cement that idea with regard to referencing the Quran, for example, um, when Allah says in the Quran that uh, he is talking about truth, it is singular. And dhulimat, oppressions, is plural. And so what you do is you say, you see, there's only one truth, and that's the truth that we're on. And the Prophet said that the uh, Muslim ummah was split up into 72 or 73 sects in the end of times, just like the Jews or the Christians. But only one of them is upon the truth. And so what you're doing is you're framing a general macro narrative that suggests that it's not sufficient to just be a Muslim. That in order to be a true actual Muslim in a day and age when the Muslims are weak, then you have to understand that even though it might go against the basic tenets of our religion to kill civilians, this is what is necessary and this is what is justified. Once that is established, you look at every single contextual circumstance, every single political cultural and social event, and you frame it in a way that is affiliated to the portrayal that Islam is under attack, that really these people aren't just trying to uphold a way of life that has proven to be successful, that of individual freedom, individual choice and religion, that in actuality, underneath it all is a deliberate, careful manipulation and conspiracy to destroy Islam as it was given to the true Muslims in the seventh century. And the entire um, ideology revolves around this ability to maintain consistent talking points that are associated with radicalization and justification for violence, but at the end of the day, to be able to tweak those with socio-political, economic, contextual conversations that can show that this applies under every single condition. So I could have made um, a conversation about why 
sneakers in the West uh, or shoes in the West um, uh, sold for X amount of dollars because it was part and parcel of a war in Islam. That's just something off the top of my head. Or why they produce uh, certain foods because it's part and parcel of trying to destroy the Muslims. Uh, everything becomes about this idea that you are under attack and you are under threat. And that means that in any way, shape, or form, whether you're a terrorist or you're just a, a sort of a radical Islamist that does the same thing, you're constantly looking to scapegoat because there's this empowerment that's associated with we are victims, but in the same manner that David battled against Goliath, if you're courageous enough to actually practice your religion the way that it is prescribed for you, then you will stand up to this so-called injustice. And that's very empowering. And that's really the basic framework. So it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. A person who is a propagandist can turn every conversation that is trending in the news into one that boils down into a very simplistic framework. That is, Islam is under attack. Everybody hates real Muslims. They'll only like you if you imitate them and behave like them. Therefore, you need to destroy them so that they can no longer engage uh, in their assault against Islam. And that means that it's not about you as an individual, that you're actually acting out in the name of your community. And so you feel invigorated and emboldened by that. And so the, 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 the media can take on different formats. It could be podcasting. It could be magazines, like you mentioned. It could be – but the important thing of the propagandist is to have outputs enough that you can create echo chambers that can implant people that are susceptible and you know are not that rational. And you're speaking to them in black and white worldviews, very conducive to their radicalization into violence. You're not exactly telling them that they should go out and uh, commit violence, but what you do realize you are doing is you are creating a very us versus them binary that has no room for grays in between black and whites. And that's very dangerous, particularly when you talk about um, things that are associated with like traumatic mindsets and people that are thinking uh, in the parts of the brain that are affiliated with fight, flight, re uh, freeze responses. And those are the people that you're typically recruiting. So our contention was not that we were brainwashing the susceptible to commit violent acts, but that we were making the truth accessible to those that seek it. The only problem is, is the only people that are irrational enough to accept it or to view things that way tend to be those with severe uh, psychological issues, criminal histories. I mean, these correlatory uh, variables associated with those that um, do go on to become uh, violent extremists are, are, are significant. And so it's the worldview that is tapping into uh, a person's preexistent hatred, but giving them a reason to display and, and to put forth that hatred in a way where they feel like they're doing it for a just cause and they're doing it to defend their group. Um, and that is, 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 is very powerful when the apt um, and capable propagandist knows how to correlate current affairs to the religious nomenclature that's associated with fundamentalist Islam. And that doesn't matter if you're the Muslim Brotherhood, Hizbut Tahrir, or other sort of less violent extremist movements, or if you're Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Yes, sure. Thank you very much. It's very interesting. I think what is very important here is to understand that at the end of the day, there is a worldview. I mean, the Islamists or jihadists, they, they, they organize things uh, along the line of a, of a worldview that is sort of opposing to uh, a Western worldview. And that is very important because it means that the debate is also uh, on, um, on, the, on the field of the values. That is very important. Uh, you have to bear in mind that a jihadi, whatever his age, you know, he thinks he's or she now, she thinks as well, because since ISIS, we've got more and more female involved in jihadism as well, uh, that they are on the right side of history and that the West is, is not. And that's very important because that's what also is uh, uh, very powerful is that they, they feel they, they are a minority fighting against a majority that is like lying and and evolving in the wrong you know and that that's very powerful as well because in order to shape an identity and then to sort of produce new behaviors uh, based on this, you need to have a sort of a meta narrative, you know, a grand, a grand narrative, as we say in French, un grand récit, uh, which will then, you know, sort of uh, engulf everything that will happen in the news. And then you've got, and that's also what JC mentioned, uh, then you have the translators, those who are able to watch the news, to listen to a political speech, to look at a, a new law uh, that is just passed at the parliament 
and to translate that into the codes and the language of that new worldview. And, and this is what propagandists are. You know, that's what they do. It's like they use this content and they produce it. And for instance, I was really, uh, uh, you know, struck when I was in, in detention and conducting interviews there with uh, returned jihad, jihadists from Syria and Iraq, and they were all French jihadists, uh, that you have, some, you know, among them, you've got some of them were like super agile when it comes to understand the the reality of of French society, what is going through, what's what's French society is uh, uh, think, is thinking about, you know, jihadism and the attacks and the likes, and they are also super agile when it comes to um, uh, they have all their bearings in the in the field of the jihadi thoughts, you know, and that's very important because they because of that they sort of this hybridity they are able to translate one into the other so they are able to look at events in France and translate that into jihadi thoughts and vice versa so that is very important to understand that I mean I don't want to be too long here but there is also one principle that is very important and uh, it is the principle of al wal bara in uh, in Arabic which could be translated as uh, you know those two those of the the, the the domain of or the abode of of of, of plague and and the abode of uh, uh, disavowal you know and and that's again this binary us versus them view where you need to sort of vow uh, allegiance uh, and pledge allegiance to our uh, you know the believers uh, with the big B with a capital B and you need to disavow the rest of the unbelievers and this is like uh, could be manipulated and shaped in so many ways that at the end of the day you are able to produce they are performative speech you know you, you can produce uh, you, you can push someone who's just into that ideology into violence or not based on the interpretation you gave of these principles so uh, again this is a complex thought it's not it's not like crazy people who just like you know, produce some some nonsense in their in their circles. They are like people who are using principle, Islamic principle, and make something out of this in a certain way, which basically is a definition of activism, right? Sure. And uh, thank you so much, Hugo, for for bringing up uh, the the, the uh, specific context of France. It is it is a context we were meaning to uh, to invite into the conversation, and, and uh, Jesse perhaps can kind of take us in, into a broader uh, global context as we as we as we go about this, but. One thing that I was really interested uh, interested in hearing from Jesse earlier is that there's this idea that there is no single path to radicalization, right? That, that, that this this is really an individual journey that, that individuals go through, and that the the contingencies that that come into play and that propaganda networks prey upon are uh, you know socioeconomic, they're cultural, but they're experienced individually, and that's what makes them so dangerous in this process of radicalization, right? Is that these networks offer a promise of, as you said earlier, Jesse, meaning and belonging, right? And that, that's what makes them so powerful. But it, I wonder that uh, shouldn't uh, whether whether it's coming at the, at the expense of uh, a broader understanding of, of how these two prongs are interacting, right? We're, we're seeing we're seeing how radicalization is, you know, the breeding ground for radicalization is extending into spheres of public life where we didn't see it. Uh, we didn't see it in, in say, five, five to 10 years past. And in the specific context that Hugo brings up, uh, there's this whole debate going out, going on now in, in Hugo's home country, France was, uh, where, you know, we're seeing these uh, uh, ecosystems of civil society organizations that are pushing uh, this very strong message of, um, of, uh, you know, of, of, uh, of communities of faith feeling stereotyped or feeling um, feeling uh, victimized by mainstream discourse, um, and I wonder, um, you know, how, how do you how do you assess the interaction of the two? Are you concerned at all? We'll start with uh, Jesse, and then we'll turn back to Hugo. Obviously, Hugo has been, uh, you know, looking at friends for 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 many years now. But Jesse, you are you you we were discussing uh, off the record uh, yesterday about this the particular context of France where you. Uh, you, you know, it seems to be very clear in your in your mind that these organizations are using that deliberately. They're uh, they're really kind of uh, evolving along parallel tracks. And so, how do you how do you assess the specific context in France? Maybe you want to bring up the UK as well. But are you concerned that uh, these civil society organizations are essentially um, becoming the breeding ground of radicalization? Just to be blunt. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do. We would call them in the literature gateway organizations. And there has been some notion of a conveyor belt between Islamist organizations and uh, 
more 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 jihadist organizations with a limited uh, amount of empirical data on it but it is a simple fact that there is a bleed through uh where someone's first contact with the islamist message is what opens them up to the politicization of their religion and finding an identity in something that has not a spiritual objective but much more a political one and if we look at the long history of Islam's growth in the West, particularly in Europe, and France included, but European-wide, um, the legacy of these civil society organizations that have gained uh, a large role uh, in the social service sector in particular uh, goes back to groups like the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, who clearly were an anti-imperialist movement that had a lot of tendencies that I would say run very congruent with far leftist uh, interpretations of reality um, from an epistemological and an ontological basis. And they have largely manipulated that uh, to find an awkward alliance between uh, far leftist critiques of capitalism and of democracy as is practiced in Western countries and a very serious social constructivism uh, that does not necessarily uphold any value of truth and objectivity. And that definitely does not ring true for uh, Islamist organizations, but because of the growing frustration, I think, uh, amongst the left uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the West uh, and their ability to sort of um, denounce uh, any real pragmatic and practical understanding of objectivity as holding any value and instead to turn inward and to critique all of what is uh, internal to Western societies and Western nations, that the, that the, that the Islamist sectors of society that have you know, gone back to, you know, it would really start it with the current era and the way that the philosophers in France interpreted the Iranian revolution where it was supposed to be this new sort of third wave of sort of a synthesis between uh, leftist communism or socialism and, 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 and right-wing uh, or, 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 or right-aligned uh, 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 notions of individual liberty and freedom under a humanist lens. Um, and in actuality, uh, nothing could be further from the truth. So there's this idea that what is being advocated for from amongst these innocuous civil society organizations that have clear uh, leanings towards the establishment of Islamist systems and the Islamization uh, of their communities and in turn their nations, whether they are Western or back uh, in uh, the Muslim uh, world, um, there has been this very awkward ability for them to tap into the grievances against the state, which have come to define far leftism, particularly in the post-World uh, Cold War era. Uh, when it really wasn't possible to point towards communism as a solution and instead to maintain a Marxist grievance uh, against what was relatively successful in spreading democracy and individual freedom, as you will, but to find uh, the faults in it. And Islamists have strategically positioned themselves well to the degree where, though they hold uh, objectivity uh, in their own epistemological and ontological worldview far distant uh, from the social constructivism that drives the left, uh, they have align themselves with regard to the grievance um, in the need and the primary objective of being able to destroy Western civilization, quote unquote, and capitalism and all of its sort of faulty underpinnings that they point to. And it's very awkward because it makes it possible for someone to at once be uh, providing civil society organizational efforts to address concerns that uh, for the Muslim community might be uh, very important and not at the top of a list of concerns. So their number one list is not terrorism. Uh, their number one list might be the advocacy for uh, rights and justice as they understand it or mental health treatment or to uh, engage in culturally sensitive educational curriculums. But in turn, if you, de if you peel that uh, apart more deeply, it has led to a merger with two groups that are diametrically opposed with regard to the way that they see, for example, religion and the role that it should play in the world, but united in the sense that they want to destroy the system that exists. And as Thomas Sowell, the great conservative uh, intellectual, has put it, it's a very much a difference between having an unconstrained and a constrained vision. 
And so they have this unconstrained vision where they will build a utopia. They just won't tell you what it looks like, right? So they'll tell you that it's the Islamic State and it's the caliphate if they are on the Islamist uh, level of thinking, uh, even while they're feeding you and giving charity to the poor. Uh, and on the far left, they'll tell you about a wonderful uh, position that would be held if you could just destroy capitalism, but they won't give you any concrete uh, or any evidence for the type of society that they want to build, nor do they have to. Uh, because uh, it is the idealism in and of itself that justifies the grievance and that in turn justifies all of the efforts in a nihilistic manner of trying to tear down the world that exists now in the hopes that you will build one up that's more conducive to your own interests. And in fact, I mean interests because it really is a sort of narcissistic sort of um, uh, seeking oneself through activism that comes out when you get underneath it. So when you meet these imams that are, you know, aligned in this manner and doing all this great CSO work uh, in the field, you really quickly ascertain that really what this is about is turning the faces in the direction of someone who wants to be an ideologue, who wants to be known as a liberator. And there's a fundamental distinction between someone that helps another for the sake of helping another and one who helps another for the sake of being looked at as a helper. Um, and so unfortunately, what we do have is we have a very serious ability um, to not understand uh, the implications for this. And we're trekking further and further into an abyss uh, where this awkward uh, unity uh, between what is perceived to be humanistically driven um, leftist uh, uh, critiques uh, conducted largely on the ground by civil society organizations that the uh, that Islamist organizations have tapped into that and are benefiting from it and also facilitating that divide that can lead one to take the next leap, which is, well, you know, I see through this guy. He wants me to turn my face on him, this imam. I've stayed around long enough to know that this is a scam, but the jihadists are offering me uh, something that is truly utopic and truly idyllic. And so they're setting seeds um, that for a low base rate of those that are are uh, engaging uh, with these uh, sort of precursory sort of pre-radicalization into violent extremist elements can indeed uh, facilitate susceptibility to accepting the jihadist message. So, uh, Hugo, in France, we would call this Islamo-gauchisme, and there's been a major controversy around this. Um, what do you think of the semantics or of the word itself? And more importantly, what do you think of the concept behind it? Yes, I'm, I'm not fond of the word in it itself. Uh, I think it's divisive. I think it's uh, it, it 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 creates more frustration and and uh, and it's difficult to have a, a proper debate afterwards. So, for instance, I, I never use it. Uh, I, I regret that a minister, the minister of research, used it. And I think before that, there was a sort of an open debate about about jihadism in France for uh, about a, a year or so. And after that, it completely blurred the message. Um, aside of that, uh, I, I think I think that we, we are having a problem, not, not only in France, but actually in, in the West in general, in Europe and in the US as well, when it comes to debating and discussing about the root cause of jihadism. I mean, when, when we want to do that, we're facing sort of two sort of behavior and reactions. The first one is like full denial mode. You know, it's like, oh, uh, no, nothing happened. And if that happened, it's because of socioeconomic marginalization. And if we are not... Un you know, unjust, then we won't, we will not have this kind of attacks and people doing this. And for instance, this is a kind of explanation that you will see uh, increasingly in liberals' newspapers uh, addressing, for instance, you know, jihadism in France as a sort of a byproduct of French ex exclusive secularism, also called laicite. You know, it's uh, uh, it's one of the one one of the approach that makes you know makes it difficult to actually try to objectify what's happening when it comes to jihadism. The other sort of behavior and response you have is like a full hysterization, which is like you know basically throwing you know oil on the inflammable you know uh, debate about islam in europe and i think that also is super wrong and that it, it leads to nowhere what we are trying to do what we're lacking what we are lacking like uh, uh, massively and and actually what is a shame is that we're, we're having trouble uh, objectifying the trends because we're lacking knowledge about it i mean we are lacking the understanding of what's uh, islamism what's jihadism 
what these groups, you know, what these kind of organization that we see in the Levant or, or in, in Afghanistan, what are they doing, you know? And we need to do that in relations with the change that are happening in the past 30 years in the West and especially in multicultural societies that we have now in, in Western Europe or in the US. And, and I think that if we are not looking, you know, at the crossroads of these different, different dynamics, I think we are, we are overlooking one of the important aspects. So for me, we need not to overlook what's happening within Islam as well, because there is a tremendous change that happened in the past you know, 50 years or so within Islam as well. One being, you know, in the so, so-called Salafi revolution that happened, which is an, an ideological revolution that happened within Islam uh, in the past 30 years. And that have like, you know, consequences over Islam in Europe too. If we're overlooking that, uh, if we are turning a blind eye on that, that we should not be surprised if, you know, then there is a catastrophe out of this. So I think the, the full denial mode uh, which is actually most of the time motivate, motivated by ignorance or by uh, a fear of being lab- labeled as racist, uh, actually produce the hysterization. And, and I'm thinking that, and I think that if we are, remain into this di- dina- denial, then we will end up with, you know, with, with the far right in power everywhere in Europe. And, and I think that's also the trap that the jihadis are setting up for, for, for Europe. And now France as a country is sort of the prime example of the country that is, you know, bashed constantly for its politics. Whereas in the meantime, you know, we are not the only one facing jihadism in the West. You know, we were, of course, the, the first provider of jihadists to the Levant. But again, I mean, if you look on a per capita basis, Belgium, Switzerland, the Netherlands, and even Sweden, like provided way more jihadists in Syria and Iraq than France. So, and we should not also forget that the first jihadi cells were like uh, built in, in the UK, in the so-called Londonistan in the 1990s, and that Brussels uh, was already a places for uh, organizing jihadi attacks everywhere in Europe in the late 1990s. You know, we should not overlook these trends and we should understand what happened within, you know, Europe in the past, uh, since the fall of the Berlin Wall, when it comes to Islam in the first place, when it comes to, uh, of course, uh, socially marginalized uh, area, and, and of course, when it comes to the political debate about all of this. And, and so far, it's like if there is a big discrepancy in people's mind between what is religion and what is politics. And we have trouble in thinking of phenomenon that is right at the, at, at the crossroad of political life and, and religious life. And I think we should absolutely uh, put an emphasis of, of studying and understanding better religious, politically-led le- uh, dynamic. Let's talk about a little bit about what we do next. And especially I want to talk a little bit about your profile, Jesse. Um, what do we do with people who have ended up joining these uh, jihadist cells? Um, what do you make of a concept of de-radicalization, how, how do you take them out? And most importantly, how did you leave this ideology in the first place? What, what kind of steps and processes led you from being a chief propagandist to being where you are nowadays? Well, I'm, one, again, if the processes associated with radicalization are individualized and unique to everyone, then to a degree that's true for de-radicalization as well. And it's a very important point to start with to suggest that clearly everyone will not de-radicalize. Um, the ideology is potent, um, and unless we can provide a uh, alternative sense of meaning, significance, purpose, network, narrative, and all of the other things that they are experiencing from their identity uh, that uh, they got uh, from engagement with the jihadist milieu, then uh, there won't be an ability. We tend to think of de-radicalization and radicalization as an individual process, uh, largely uh, with individual agency. But in fact, people's behavior is much more um, prone to go in the way of their group dynamics and the context in which it exists than it is to be influenced by a rational uh, set of decision making. And that really was my ability uh, to pull myself out of the movement. So I was a very prominent uh, preacher and propagandist, uh, created not just the templates, but was known as one of the, uh, in the English language, uh, most prominent preachers and uh, advocates of the jihadist ideology operating out of New York City. But I threatened the writers of South Park uh, and caused international controversy. Uh, for many years, we walked the fine line of, of 
not to violating the principle of free expression in the United States, which is very uh, liberal uh, compared to anywhere else in the world and very difficult to cross, in fact. Um, but I knew that when we threatened the writers of South Park on our website that I had broken the law. And it wasn't by desire. It was by uh, it was by the simple fact of not wanting to go to prison that led me to get on an airplane and travel to Morocco um, to try to get away with what I thought would probably be uh, my incarceration if I stayed in America. But haphazard circumstance took me into a position where the context changed and my contact with the network was almost impossible. So when I arrived in Morocco, it was uh, approaching Ramadan. And because I was on the run, facing criminal uh, prosecution, perhaps, um, I had to withdraw from the movement. I couldn't talk to Abdullah Faisal in Jamaica any longer, Omar Bakri Muhammad in the UK, and Jim Chaudhry, and all of these charismatic preachers that were constantly keeping me solidified and engaged with this network. I couldn't get the exhilaration of producing propaganda. And so while it was not my intention, what I realized in retrospect that did for me was it pulled me out of the network. When we talk about people in uh, prison settings, there's implications for that, just to mention them briefly, is that oftentimes we do engagement work uh, in one-on-one -on -one settings, in prison settings with people, uh, and then they go right back to a cell block where they're completely exposed to a network that is conducive to their radicalization. So just to mention that, it's important to get people removed from the network because when people are by themselves, they think very differently than they do when they're with their group. Um, and for me, uh, unbeknownst to me, this induced an ability for me to uh, get back into a level of seeing the grays between the blacks and the whites. And then I did Ramadan uh, in Morocco. Uh, and Ramadan in Morocco is very beautiful and it's very hospitable and there's a lot of community there. And there's a very moderate interpretation of Islam that is predominant. And uh, for I think the first time in a while, uh, I had time uh, because my uh, propaganda efforts took up, you know, 80 hours a week when you combine them with work and school and all the other things I had all going on. I, I never took a break. I was constantly, uh, in order to numb underlying traumas and pain, I realize now, you know, working on advocating for this ideology. Being that I had more time, I got to actually sit down and experience the recitation of Quran and to re recognize a more peaceful uh, aspect of the religion uh, that I claimed to believe in so much. And then uh, the Arab Spring broke out. And in the context of momentum for democracy uh, in uh, the Middle East, I began to be enthralled by uh, Arab millennial youth, uh, sitting with those that were the most affluent, uh, teaching them GMAT, GRE tests so that they could go back to a West that I despised to study for master's degrees. Um, I started to talk to them about their ambitions in the context of an Arab Spring. And I found myself enthralled. I, I found myself um, sort of connecting with... Um, new people and having a lot of hope uh, that ran uh, coincident to like, we always wanted revolution uh, in the Middle East. Uh, but uh, recognizing the futility of the totalitarian approach of forcing it upon people from a top down, vis-a-vis uh, -vis a bottom up approach, there was a lot of help uh, for uh, bottom up uh, transformation. And in so doing, uh, I think a second seed of uh, uh, of change was was planted inside of me so much so that when Osama bin Laden released a uh, piece of propaganda denouncing uh, global warming uh, and saying that it was all the United States' fault uh, and really reducing uh, the global warming narrative in a pathetic effort to rebrand al-Qaeda, uh, for the first time, someone who I upheld as eight feet tall became a normal human being. And in fact, with a master's degree from uh, an Ivy League school by the time uh, this occurred, it was just absurd that this man who I thought uh, could be a potential leader and policymaker in a future ambitious Islamic state was um, quite moronic, to be honest with you. But uh, had I been in the network, I never would have realized that. And the process from there just kept unfolding to the point where I spent a year in Morocco, was arrested, finally, uh, with an indictment issued for my extradition back to the United States two weeks after Osama bin Laden was killed. And um, rather than, you know, I could have been tough and I was facing life in prison and I could have pretended that I hadn't changed during that year in Morocco. But rather than do that, I was... Uh, helped by the fact that I met Mohammed Fizazi, who was a Salafi jihadist preacher who had de-radicalized in Moroccan prison while I was in prison. Um, and um, conversations with him made me realize that even though I might end up spending the rest of my life in prison, I needed to at least try to heal that I was wrong. And it took a while. Uh, but by the time I got back to the United States to face possible life's imprisonment, the seeds of change had already been planted. And then the lengthier story, that would be disengagement in the literature, we distinguish between disengaging from the movement, 
and de-radicalizing, meaning transforming your worldview. The de-radicalization aspect and transforming my worldview took many years, but it became a process of a thirst for um, recognizing my wrongs, but also recognizing a new alternative ideology and identity to believe in. And it's there that I came to understand the distinguishment between the idealistic utopias uh, that radicals often espouse, but hardly ever live up to the standards that they espouse publicly in private. So I knew there was inconsistencies between the idealisms I was promoting and the practices that I was engaged in behind closed doors and coming to a more uh, nuanced understanding of the way the actual world really works. Um, and luckily for me, it was not the end of my life. And I have been able to uh, come home from prison and um, continue to uh, de-radicalize through the work I do, um, working to de-radicalize others. So without elaborating upon how those, uh, that my process has some implications for mechanisms and methods that we might utilize to de-radicalize uh, others, uh, I'll end there and, and, and kick it back over to you. Thanks a lot, uh, uh, Jesse. It's a very incredible story. It's very inspiring. Um, Ugo, I know for a fact you're not very comfortable with the concept of de-radicalization. Um, if de-radicalization is not the right tool to fight against jihadist propaganda, what kind of counter-narrative do you think we should build? given the experience you've uh, also accumulated. Yes, I'm, I'm not comfortable with de-radicalization because actually I'm not comfortable with the concept of radicalization either. I mean, I think, I think uh, that we can put everything and its converse inside this and therefore we, we, it's not the, the right one to grasp reality. I know what's jihadism. I know what's, you know, political activism, uh, religious activism, but a radicalization, it, I mean, it covers so many different aspects of the phenomenon that at the end of the day, it, we find it hard to, to know what actually is the definition of radicalization. And that's actually why it is so widely used by media and the administration and institution that loves, you know, this sort of, uh, of uh, sort of um, catchwords, exactly. So um, when it comes to de-radicalization, what I want to say is that, of course, uh, uh, every situation is different. And I mean, what Jesse just, just addressed is, is fascinating and enlightening. I also think it's uh, uh, it's not that common, and that's all. I mean, you understand. I I don't want to put words in his mouth, but you understand from Jesse's uh, story how difficult it should have been. You know what the kind of stuff he should have been through to now being able to 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 be so articulated about it, and therefore it, not everyone is able to do so. And and what I want to say is that for a guy, for someone who is in, involved. In, in such a movement, the getting de-radicalized is as, as distant and as uh, absurd as a, a lay person, a normal citizen, to get radicalized, you know, to think about, you know, just going in Syria and just start, you know, participating to jihad for, for, the, for the, 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 the average British or the average French or the average American, it sounds, you know, a bit odd, right? And, and, and it's because, again, they, they, they perceive or they perceive themselves as, as being on, on, the, on the right side of history, right? And so we need to work uh, first, first thing first. We need to put this, a strong diagnosis of what we are facing right now. And I think we're still lacking, you know, like global, a global diagnosis explaining what's jihadism in the West. I mean, I'm a researcher. Uh, I work on a daily basis on these issues and I'm concerned about the, the small amount of intellectual uh, production when it comes to that. Whereas the role of university in a society is actually to produce knowledge, right? And we're still like, uh, we're still at a moment where we, we, we're missing, I mean, uh, you know, like a sort of a common a common understanding of these issues. Second, uh, we need to be able to talk about this to make society, you know, to 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 talk about this as 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 a you know as democracies and being able to tackle that challenge without you know feeling afraid of being labeled as racist or on the other hand, you know, uh, you know, using this to sort of start stigmatizing Muslims. 
you know, that's something uh, that, that, I mean, we still have to find that balance in the public debate and we're still far from it. And to be honest, I, I'm pretty sure we're getting actually in the other way, which is like uh, increasing polarization and politicization of these issues. And, and last but not least, we need to also understand what's happening, uh, that most of these trends that we've talking about are happening on an individual basis, but also on a local basis. And this might be actually the weak point, especially in Europe, because now we've got, you know, sort of a, a different level. There is a sort of a, an ability to talk about that and even to look uh, response, uh, look for answers and response. But on a local level, you've got uh, the, you know, the, the sort of the, the political logic of things where, you know, the mayor uh, at some point needs to be elected and he needs to deal with association and organization. And, and that's where the problem lies most of the time. It's like in the small sort of, uh, reluctancy or small compromise that at the end of the day will end up creating a, a difficult situation to deal with. So I, I, I think, I genuinely think we need to understand better what, what's Islam in Europe to make a big difference between what's Islam and Islamism, but in the meantime to understand what kind of stuff and what kind of activism and activities Islamist organization of all sorts try to develop within Islam. And if we don't open that black box, if we like turn a blind eye, I mean, we will have again new surprise. So I mean, we need to do more. We need to do more. We, we need to create more, more, more stuff about it. But uh, let's, I mean, let's not fall into like simplistic solutions such as, you know, de-radicalization center and, and that, that's it, I think. And, and the time by the time we will have a million of JC's, JC Morton, I think, you know, uh, the problem will solve by itself. Well, thanks, uh, Hugo. You've got a knack, uh, academic knack for conclusions because it's a great way to, uh, place to end that. Uh, thank you so much, Jesse. Thank you so much, Hugo, for this fascinating conversation on propaganda, jihadist propaganda, how it works, its objectives, its allies. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show and see you next week. And so Jesse Morton of uh, Parallel Networks and Hugo Micheron of uh, Princeton have just departed uh, the room. Francois, what did you think of this this episode on uh, jihad propaganda and all the questions we've been discussing? First of all, it was really interesting to have Jesse on, on board. Um, it's not it's not often you manage to get someone who really has been in the inside of this whole thing. You know, you, you really can't get any closer. Mm. Um, to the kind of nuclear reactor of propaganda than he was. He, he, he co-founded Inspire, which was one of the leading magazines. Um, he was an Al-Qaeda recruiter. Um, so tremendously thankful he, he was able to come here and, and explain his experience and uh, he kind of his road of Dam to Damascus moments in, in Morocco. Mm. Um, something else I want to talk a little bit about. We didn't have that much time to, to delve into the details of uh, Hugo's book um, on, uh, on, on France and jihadism. Um, his book is so good. I really recommend it to anyone who wants to get an, an insight on, on the kind of Islamist jihadist movement in France, but more generally on, on the way this kind of propaganda works. And there was a really great passage towards the end on prisons. And he says, for people who are sentenced to prison, those jihadists who are sentenced to prison in France, really see this as kind of a finishing school for jihadism. They see this as an opportunity to spend 5, 10, 15 years, depending on how longer sentences, to focus on getting smarter, stronger and for, for when they come out. Not just physically, but intellectually. It is so impressive. When, well, it's terrifying, actually, when he, when he describes what they do in prison. They're going to read books, but not just, you know, Islamist the theology. They'll be reading uh, political the uh, philosophy. They'll be reading uh, books about the economy, books about uh, politics, books about law, books about all these kind of very, you know, he, he compares it to the INA, INA being the top finishing score for civil servants in France, which is very prestigious. Um, and that's actually quite terrifying. And and it, it makes us, you know, the de-radicalization approach, which was pursued in France a few years ago with, with the idea that, you know, you could pet kit kittens and, and all of a sudden they would become uh, nice people and, you know, mm. uh, uh, abandoned violence seem, seem to be a very short-sighted. These people have a right. long-term project and it's quite... Uh, yeah, quite quite terrifying. Sure, and and one of the so one of the one of the first things that I that I find really striking in in what you've just uh, quoted from from Hugo is um, the idea that a lot of these uh, networks have kind of smartened up and yeah. and uh, really um, um, 
woken up to the, the the power of ideas and the ways that they can kind of embed themselves in the marketplace of ideas mm-hmm. and use the, the freedoms that we enjoy in the West as a vector to uh, further radicalize, um, you know, uh, the kind of the, the kind of the kinds of, of target populations that the that the um, that the, uh, the the kind the kinds of populations they do target in the West. And the other thing that I find really striking in in, in just the quote you you just um, you just uh, used is we we tend to think of prisons as rather the inverse, right? As an as an experience of what you call de-radicalization. I, I yeah. believe towards the end of the episode when you were asking them both kind of about this this concept of de-radicalization. I mean, what what comes to mind is the experience of someone who you could almost see as a as a mirror image of uh, Jesse Morton on the UK. Uh, on the on our side of the Atlantic, uh, who is Majid Nawaz, right? He yeah. he uh, underwent a thorough process of de-radicalization whilst uh, being in uh, prison in Egypt, I believe. Uh, I forget kind of what what specific network he was a part of, if it was Al Qaeda or, or which one. But he de-radicalized in prison, and, and I think that the standard uh, understanding in, in in the West, the kind of the popular narrative, holds prisons as being rather the opposite, right? As an, as a very yeah. Uh, as, as just a place where, I mean, the, the whole concept of imprisoning jihadists seems to be wired towards uh, de-radicalizing them. And, and it seems like we're failing at doing that if some, some, some of them are, in fact, traveling the, the inverse route towards more radicalization, towards using the time and the, 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 the quiet the, the quiet, right, and the, the, the sort of the, the peace of mind in a way that comes with being, you know, behind bars to further radicalize by, you know, reading and, and kind of uh, smartening up as, as, as we initially said. So and what, what I, what I find, uh, what I found really striking uh, just before we went live discussing things with uh, Jesse was, I believe just a couple of weeks ago was certainly this month. I think it was uh, midway through, through the month of April. Uh, we got the news that the Quilliam Foundation, which is a really interesting organization working on much, much of the same kind of issue portfolio that Parallel Networks uh, works on, the, the issues of kind of radicalization and hate and extremism, looking at both uh, the way they manifest on the jihadist um, space, but also on the far right space and kind of bringing the two together. So this was this was uh, an organization that had worked on these issues in, in the UK and they they, they had a um, they had a shutdown uh, in April for reasons that that I, I, I don't quite remember. But Jesse was was um, was talking about it just before we went live, and it seems like you know there's there's a lot of overlap in between what they did and what Jesse does and with Parallel Networks. So um, so that's really interesting. And I, I wonder if uh, you, you did uh, read bits of Hugo's book. Was there anything particularly French that struck you in terms of what Hugo describes? Uh, and in terms of prisons being, you know, he, he looked, I mean, it seems like he did a very thorough, uh, on the ground, uh, kind of scholarly work interviewing uh, radicals, right? And what, what was that like specifically in France? Is there anything you can tell our audience in terms of, well, this is how, you know, specific French prisons um, um, operate? Well, yeah. I, th- I think what's specific about France is there's an overpopulation in prisons. That, make, that makes it a huge dilemma because on one side, you would like to uh, isolate those jihadists, but it's not possible. So then you have a dilemma between um, separating them, mm. then risking to risking the spread of this ideology to uh, non-jihadist cellmates, or concentrating them, mm. and then they kind of end up in a self-reinforcing bubble. And my kind of dilemma is especially strong in France. Um, but I think what is specific to France in that, to that in his book is the jihadists who French jihadists have a sense that France, more than any other European country, is a symbol, a beacon for something larger mm. than just the issue of France. So um, here's this great quote um, I have from Hugo's book of a, um, a, a jihadist called Youssef who's in, who's in prison and, and talks to Hugo. And he says, France is a factory to, of ideas. In France, ideas go very far away from laïcité to vivre ensemble, vivre ensemble being the uh, capacity of different communities to be able to uh, coalesce together in one community. These are ideas that France has spread to the world, and I believe that it is on this field that we can win. And I think this sense that fighting these battles in France will shape the way these battles are fought across the world is so insightful. And so when we talk a little bit about the, the kind of useful idiots 
who um, most mostly, of course, are unwillingly have been uh, allies, objective allies of these movements by you know, making France this uh, horrendous racist country, which is uh, you know, borderline like Nazi Germany in 1933. They've been doing a huge disservice because, as they say, they, the reason they target France is because they really see in France um, uh, what Hugo says is that the values of French Republic are the total opposite to their utopia. And so they believe that it's important to sap the French model uh, entirely, and that will impact the Western thinking in its whole. And I think that's something we have to be very careful when we when we make this criticism about France. Now, there's some genuine criticism about the way the government has been handling some of these issues and debates, but I think a lot of people ignore ignore the fact they are helping uh, this kind of jihadist propaganda, mm. uh, this victimhood nar- narrative that yeah. we talked with, with Jesse. And th- and that's where this whole conversation comes comes back full circle, uh, and, and it seems to interact with uh, with. Um, the state of French culture at this at this particular time, where you know we're 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 again talking of uh, Islamo-gauchism, and, and we're talking about the kind of the intersection, or you know the the ways in which uh, some of these woke tendencies towards uh, racializing minorities and victimizing minorities as, yeah. as being the sort of the uh, the um, uh, really the um, uh, throwing horses. Yeah, yeah. So the, the 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 I mean, this this isn't really all that different from what you see in the UK. But the, the, what you're seeing in France, my reading is, uh, you're you're having these uh, communities, particularly communities of Islamic faith, that are getting this very strong message from the NGOs that operate in that space that they are the victims of a system that stereotypes them as being a fifth column that you know that doesn't embrace that doesn't embrace the values of France and and, and things of that nature. So. Um, what they don't, what they perhaps do or don't realize, but it, it's certainly what they do play into is that they radical networks are using that climate to stoke resentment, right? And yeah. and um, what I what I found so interesting is that there's kind of this larger point, as you said towards the beginning, about kind of the state of liberal democracy, right? I mean, these radical networks are very um, um, they're very um, cunning and acute in the way they, they analyze liberal society, right? They say, you know, that the, the, here, here's, here's a bunch of Western liberal societies that, you know, grandstand around the principles of uh, tolerance and, um, and, and openness, uh, but they don't want you to steer too far away from their script. And if you become a, you know, a, um, you know, an, an, an Islamic scholar who's got, you know, it's somewhat of a conservative interpretation of the Quran that's when you start veering off script and that's when you start being stereotyped as, as being a fifth column in, in French society. So they, they're, they're using these narratives and they're the, the way that the two, the way that the radical propaganda and the woke culture intersect. I mean, we even had a piece on this uh, yes, remember, actually, yeah. a few months ago and the way the woke Islamist uh, access is being, is being, um, is being, is lining up is I think a really worrying uh, trend and phenomenon. And it's, it's one that we were able to get into in, the, in this episode. So I, I don't want to go through the whole piece, but essentially the reason we wrote this piece is because I remember Erdogan was complaining about a cartoon in Charlie Hebdo. And what was so funny is this cartoon where he was talking about systemic racism and all those kind of buzzwords sounded like some kind of something you would read on an American campus complaining about systemic racism. It was just so incredibly similar that we had to write something about it. Mm. Uh, but anyways, I highly recommend you all go and get a read of uh, Hugo's book, uh, Le Djihadisme Français, Quartier, Syrie, Prison. A translation will be coming soon. Uh, you can also listen to our episode number four with Gilles Kepel, uh, France's Islamist Poison on this very issue, one of the most popular episodes. And speaking of popular episodes, Jorge, do you know how many countries we have downloaded so far after uh, eight months, six months, seven months? How, how many countries do you think we've been downloaded in? Uh, look, I have no idea, but I, I'm tempted to uh, to number uh, I, the Islamic State as, as part of that number. Uh, maybe, maybe. Oh, actually, we have downloads in Iraq. That's a good point. Okay. Um, but we have we have downloads in 71 countries, so fantastic. Thank you so much. Our newest um, country edition is Mozambique. So if you're currently listening to us from Cidade de Maputo, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> and uh, if you want to support us, you know, idea would want to reach 100 countries by the end of the year. Wouldn't that be fantastic? There's so many small things you can do. You can like the show, you can subscribe, you can review. We always love your your reviews. You can rate, you can send it to friends. All these small things really help the show grow week after week. So anyways, thank you so much for support. And if you can always uh, lend a little little hand, feel free to do so. Uh, Jorge, thank you very much. Thank you, Hugo. Thank you, Jesse. And uh, see you next week. See you next week.